Hello everyone, it is a pleasure to have you with us in this podcast brought to you by Project Sayang Kita, an initiative towards the awareness of hate speech and how we can address the various issues with regards to hate speech. In today's podcast, we would be discussing about the incidents of May 13 and how the incident has implications towards the spectrum of hate speech within our society. As such, we would like to welcome our guests in today's podcast, Mr. Gerald Joseph, a commissioner of the Human Rights Commission of Malaysia, Suhakam. But before that, a brief introduction into our guests for today. For the last 20 years, Mr. Gerald Joseph has been a human rights defender and a trainer consultant at both local and international levels. He specializes in human rights issues concerning the rights of indigenous people, elimination of racial discrimination, economic, social, and cultural rights, as well as human rights-based approach in development. Mr. Gerald Joseph received his Bachelor of Applied Sciences in Industrial Chemistry from University of Science Malaysia. He subsequently earned his Master's in Human Rights from Mahidol University, Thailand. He was one of the senior civil society members who led the Malaysian NGOs reporting to the Universal Periodic Review Working Group in Geneva and had engaged with key stakeholders during Malaysia's previous UPR process. He also served as a member of various human rights organizations, including the Commonwealth Foundation, Asian South Pacific Bureau for Adult Education, Asia-Pacific NGO uh, Steering Committee of World Conference Against Racism, WCAR. He is presently a board member and advisor of the Anti-Racism and Non-Discrimination Program of Pusat Komunikasi Masyarakat Sendirian Berhad, also known as Pusat Komas. Mr. Gerald was appointed as a Commissioner of Suhakam in June 2016. Having said that, good morning, Mr. Gerald, and how are you doing today with the lockdown situation in Malaysia? Uh, good morning, uh, Donald. Uh, I'm doing well, as well as Malaysians are, despite the frustration of lockdowns. But I think uh, our strength and resilience to keep going. Uh, work is still there. Nothing changes. I think work has got gotten more than before. But I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, Mr. Gerald. Um, we, we, at least we are keeping sane, you know, doing this uh, initiative, doing this campaign, in order to ensure that we all are, you know, well equipped in our you know mental health and you know at least learning and understanding about things that we can do during this time of pandemic and one of it is you know basically learning about hate speech and that's what our campaign is uh, through projects and kita for today so uh, mr gerald let's dive into our topic for today which is about the incidents of may 13 and how the incident has implications towards the spectrum of hate speech within our society Firstly, Mr. Gerald, could you uh, kindly share with us about your recollection of the May 13 incident and your point of view of how the incident happened, what occurred, just for our knowledge purpose? Okay, um, well, I I was uh, not there yet, there baby, so it doesn't really count uh, May 13. Uh, but all the incidences as I grew up from stories from my parents and other friends uh, points to the incident as such a powerful mark in the history of Malaysia painful actually uh, because uh, the stories of uh, killing the stories of uh, pain the stories of anger of one community against the other so it was 
the story is always told as a clash between uh, ethnic groups, you know, uh, racial groups in Malaysia. And it keeps re uh, repeated so often. And uh, sadly, if a brief memory serves me right, uh, um, politicians uh, in the last 30, 40 years would bring it up, resurrect this point, just to make a point that uh, you need not, you, you, you should not talk about anything uh, on race, ethnicity because of May 13th. So sometimes it's used also to stop uh, positive and good discussions on ethnicity. But the incident itself, I mean, if you, uh, well, I do know the history books in the present school, but at least my history book at that time was a very short uh, paragraph on May 13. Uh, it was a racial riot. Uh, between Chinese, Indian, and I had no clue what was the background, what caused it, and you know, uh, until when I did more reading later on, talked to people, that's when I found out that uh, there were many stories untold. Uh, and I think a lot of the stories I got when I came to KL after I completed my studies. Uh, the incidences of May 13 uh, ranges from the political history of Malaysia, uh, to an election, as we know, we can read it now. An election that saw the power of the ruling party lose in the big state of Selangor uh, capital. And so uh, the opposition at that time won. And, uh, and part of Malaysia's uh, sad history is that the opposition is branded as Chinese and anti-Malay. And that's not new, it's still happening today. You still hear the same language uh, happening today. So I think that was the loss of political power and using race, uh, inciting people to, uh, to go to the streets to fight. I think this is a tragedy because losing an election means you work to win the elections back, not to take to the streets to fight that uh, election. And uh, that tragedy is what caused the whole um, violence that uh, basically I think was mainly in Kuala Lumpur, Selangor, as the yeah. stories tell us, but the fear was all over the country. So how can one politician, I think this was the Dato Harun at that time, incite people in, the, in, in Selangor, calling people to come together, giving a fiery speech and then arming uh, them, and then the violence uh, escalated. So, you know, violence begets violence. And that's the sad part, you know. Uh, so if one group started taking parang and knives and walking, and then one, two killing, then there's no WhatsApp. So it did not escalate that fast, but <laughs> telephone calls, people driving, then say there's killing there, there's burning there. And then people started arming themselves to protect. And then neighbors in village who live for 150 years suddenly become suspicious of each other and you know all trying to call out oh that's a Chinese family that's a Malay family Indian family so so you broke the Malaysia that worked together to achieve independence because at that time the common enemy was the British or the the Japanese you know the World War II so everybody was fighting to free Malaysia and that time we did not look at this uh, differentiation, but May 13th, uh, that was uh, the, the important color to prove who you are, who are your friends. And so the killing started. Uh, I also heard many tragedies 
from interviewing individuals, uh, uh, senior people in, in Kuala Lumpur. When I was I came here to, to live, I was renting a room in Jalan Gasing, and the uncle who lived there was a senior retired civil service. And he said his job during May 13 was like a Red Cross job. Uh, he was in the government, I think so, but he was tasked to join the one truck that goes up and picks up bodies in Kuala Lumpur. And so I was very shocked and surprised. I never heard this story. He said, every day we pick up, we just drive along, we pick up, put in a truck, and we go to Sunai Bulu and we bury the bodies. So even that shocked me. You know? I had no clue that there was uh, burial graves or mass burial in Sunai Bulu. I don't know where. He said, I, I, somewhere in Sunai Bulu, I can't, because now it's all changed. But there was a first first revelation for me that not much is known about uh, May 13. Uh, killings were so serious. Then uh, I was doing also a project in uh, the old Kampung Medan, the original Kampung Medan by uh, Old Klang Road by the river. Uh, we were doing a situation project for the poor, poor families there. Then when I was talking to some uncles there, the parents, you know, while waiting for the kids. And so one family told me he, 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 he was a, uh, a sick man who uh, had uh, rearing cows, you know, by the river. And uh, he said during that time, they were all so frightened. They just would lock off all lights and hide in the house. And he can peep through the, through the household and see Cars coming, uh, uh, soldiers coming to the river. Uh, they had some women. They would rape them, then kill them, throw the bodies into the river. And he said that he also seen the soldiers come, change their uniform into police uniform, uh, and then uh, do these heinous crimes and then go off. You know, I didn't understand at that time. Then I realized because the uh, Police force at the time was a uh, very mixed force, you know? uh, not a majority Malay like it is today, and, but the military was a majority Malay. So I think even that was playing on it. That shouldn't have happened because police and military should always be professional. It doesn't matter what color you are, you, you have a duty to bear. So this was some incidences that uh, I was told by very senior people, well, they've passed away now. And then uh, Komas, the time we were doing a project on uh, on uh, national unity or non-discrimination. So we, it was a workshop, a sit-in workshop. So at the end of the three-day workshop, it was a mixed crowd of 50 people. At the end of the workshop, when, once we are comfortable to tell stories, so the last day of the workshop is sort of a closing ceremony where people can tell their stories uh, in a confident way. And many people started telling their painful suspicion of each other, their, their parents or grandparents told them that somebody was killed or suffered and they were crying. They said, I never had a chance to tell this story. And, and, the, and that whole thing created a space where everybody was a victim in Malaysia. They, of course, uh, the Malay community will have some Malays killed or, or injured. The Chinese had a lot of story of their family killed or injured or houses burned. And the Indians also had their own story of being victims of violence, although it was mainly between Malay and Chinese. So everyone was a victim in May 13. Uh, and, and this is an incident that uh, should never happen because uh, every life 
should be respected and is worthy of continuing. And this political incident that was abused by politicians and then spread uh, and it's become the darkest incident in our country called the May 13th incident. So I think uh, it, it still shadows us, uh, but I'm glad to say that shadow is beginning much lighter now. It's harder to, to resurrect the ghost of the past as it was uh, before. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. May 13 was a really dark day for all Malaysians. I think I've heard stories from my grandparents as well during the whole incident. And it was shocking because it, it looked like a war zone. That was what I was told. It was looked like it looked like a war zone. And, you know, they had to hunker down. There was, you know, the, the emergency ordinance was in effect, you know, and it, it, it was it was mad. And, you know, I think the, the irony is that it all began from a political strife. And that was the weird irony. It, it wasn't because of any, you know, uh, you know, societal differences. It was a political strife, which is quite, you know, baffling to me. And in fact, it I agree also because May 13 was supposed to be an incident that should be more of an awareness. But for some reason, in our sejarah books, textbooks, it's not, you know, uh, critically discussed. And it's not critically being taught. And perhaps the powers that be, we wouldn't go too far into that. But, um, you know, it is what it is. But uh, Mr. Gerald, based on uh, your recollection of May 13, do you believe, right, that the events of May 13, I mean, you have briefly touched on it just now, uh, has it evolved into a modern interpretation of our current political climate in our country today? Mm. Well, I think... Uh... The interpretation uh, has evolved because of the political state of Malaysia has evolved. So if I want to give a marker, uh, maybe we, uh, we are 60 plus years after independence. Um, so, so maybe before the 2018 or 2013 election, uh, it was such a common phenomena for the ruling party, mainly AMNO, to resurrect this and all the time and say, be careful and because we, you only need to vote Barisan National, this political party, because we have the formula. Basically, we have the formula uh, to, to run the government. So if you don't use this formula, then May 13 may happen. You know, and you know how bad May 13 was and we are the ones who can manage it. So they keep using this and that's wrong uh, because uh, you keep resurrecting uh, a pain of the country uh, that actually is caused by politicians uh, and it's keeping people apart because if, what you're basically saying is that uh, let's stay uh, vaguely united but strongly in our own uh, ethnic uh, cocoons and then the politicians will manage these cocoons uh, as what we call the false national unity. And that's how the country uh, should, should happen. So that's how it was for a long time. Uh, politicians could give this speech both in parliament, in their campaigning speeches, uh, some directly, some indirectly. And we had some ugly incidences where uh, some present politicians who still, still exist uh, were part of gatherings in stadiums using the kris and say you know soak the kris with the chinese blood and 
So those kind of sentiments were sentiments of the May 13, you know, when everybody was so politicized and angry uh, because the news spread that you kill my family or you kill that and it became a Malay versus Chinese. So, so both even the Chinese got angry and they started organizing and they started burning and killing. So, so at that time, it was already uh, gone down uh, the path of uh, almost no control. But 50, 60 years later, you expect the nation to have an honest evaluation of where we are and also at least a humble way of uh, admitting this is a painful past and uh, we need to use it more for learning, for healing, for bringing people together, but not threats, not trying to winning, uh, win political points. But that was, I think, the first 50 plus years. Then when the the political landscape started changing and that's why I think it's important for democracy to be alive. When uh, democracy was not like <clears throat> the same party ruling for 60 years cannot change one. Uh, and then you realize, oh, okay. Um, we should be able to have a different conversation. And I think that's why uh, the last, uh, I think, PH victory, it's in their manifesto that uh, May 13 should not be exploited or used. And so that was good that politicians say, okay, this is a non-issue. And also the using of May 13 now is uh, mocked upon, at least in the prior two elections. Uh, stop using May 13. This is not, not the right thing to do. So politics change the politicians who are not in power. And when they're not in power, they realize, hey, okay, okay, this is not going to work. I need to change my tactics. So if you don't give them premium for selling May 13, then they move away uh, from it. So I think the new, newer generation uh, who's involved in democracy is not interested in this game of uh, ethnicity, but interested in the bigger issues. What kind of policies we have in the country, what kind of economics, you know, is the politics good, not? So I think the modern interpretation of May 13 Maybe I'm not sure the younger generation, as you say, still has very little information on what happened. So I'm glad maybe they don't have to be stuck with that narrative of the past where they fear. The fear narrative is what politicians hope they can hold you on. You know? But when you don't have uh, memory, you don't have enough uh, storytelling, it's probably the older generation that still have that, that pain. And sadly, the older generations are still in power. They are the ones that control the politics, control the civil service. And they can uh, reinterpret things like this and say we must, uh, you know, the majority must take control of this country. And that's not true, and that shouldn't be uh, the case. So I'm I'm glad to say that we've moved away from the utilization of May 13 as like a hijack, a blackmailing situation uh, to something that now, if somebody wants to talk about it, they have to prove what's the relevance. And I think politicians who use this will be attacked even more, saying, "How, what kind of politician are you? you know? uh, still exploiting stories of old. That means you, you, you have no more model, not a model, kosong. So better talk something else. So I think the new politician also pandai already. So they know that, okay, maybe this is not something I should, I should do. But I think in our lessons of national unity, then uh, we need to come to terms with the pain that everyone suffered. We need to reconcile history. So the blame game doesn't go. So although maybe publicly it's not happening, but uh, maybe among communities, they're still saying, oh, you know, the 
this May 13, this uh, Chinese uh, trying to challenge the Malays. And you, that language should not be there because it's about Malaysians. And in politics, any Malaysian should be able to stand in politics, win power and be a minister, or even the prime minister. Until we don't go down that path, we'll be forever stuck in this kind of dualism that the majority should hold big power and the others can hold small power. And that's where I think is one of the biggest uh, faults in our political lines in Malaysia. Right. Yeah, indeed, I agree. Because that the evolution has occurred and I think fear has become a great motivator towards the implication of the political strife from the May 13 incident. But in relation to that, based on that May 13, uh, that dark day, does, uh, in relation to our current campaign, which is hate speech, does hate speech have anything to do with the ethnic clashes or is it just more of pure hate? Because pure hate can be uh, a subjective matter, but hate speech, as we know, is a very uh, subjective, objective. There is a fine line between the two. So students of May 13 be considered a hate speech or does hate speech, in fact, have anything to do with the ethnic clashes during the incident? Well, you know, hate speech is manufactured. So, uh, hate uh, also is experienced uh, both uh, either they believe it's true or it is sold to, to an individual. So, hate grows. Okay. So, May 13th obviously is uh, a selling of hate uh, through incitement of hate speech uh, by politicians. Yeah. I'm, I'm always say that you need to go to the root cause of how it started. Uh, so if the person did not uh, incite that gathering in, uh, in KL, in Kampung Baru, uh, would we have what we have today? Uh, so if uh, they think, oh, because the, the ones who won were deeply winning, there were some uh, lorries going around celebrating their victory. So that was incitement to hate. So I'm not sure how to celebrate a victory call incitement to hate. But I think inciting people to take up parang's arms to defend uh, Bangsa Melayu against the others, that's incitement of hate. So definitely hate speech, incitement to hate speech was used to start off, to trigger May 13. Then of course, after that, what happens is you can't analyze what happened after that because the trigger then broke the so-called controls then the common Malaysian, who, who was that time kind, passive, suddenly got angry or got fearful. Say, okay, I also need to uh, defend myself, protect myself. I need to take a parang or a knife or whatever because it's dangerous. And then another group say, no, that fuller did this to my family. Then you join and you go. So that's when the breakdown of uh, civilities happened. But the original incident, incitement of hate speech, I think if we study that, there was, those hate speeches were the one that triggered May 13. And I think uh, in politics, uh, campaigning to win your, your votes should not incite hate, but you should, uh, of course, woo people to win. But after you win or lose, you stop. You stop your campaigning and say, well, uh, Malaysia, well, uh, the good news was that in 2018, when Barisan National laws, I mean, thanks to the then Prime Minister Najib, who actually handed over 
the, the reins. And that's how it should be. Lah. So when you lose, you say, okay, thank you and move on, you know. And that's, that's what a modern democracy should happen. So I think that's the lesson we should learn from May 13 and a good lesson from uh, 2018 after the GE 14. Uh, Barisan National handed over power to the new government after 60 over years, and that should happen regularly uh, as a fashion. But then this hate speech then uh, did not end after May 13 ended. You know, um, the politicians revamped the national, because there was a National Security Council in operations at that time. Uh, they came up with new policies uh, to stem uh, uh, the divide. Yeah. But sadly, the reference to this incident of hate speech was not analyzed from a hate speech uh, perspective. And I think politicians were still going on and they were still campaigning based on a lot of uh, hate speech. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think even in the modern history of, of, of Malaysia, I think before 2018, uh, there's, uh, the, the, there was a group from Datuk Jamal, the Amno gang, who used to organize this uh, red T-shirt counter rally to Perse and whatever not. No? Yeah. There's always this red T-shirt counter rally. And they were always threatened, say this is our Malay country, and you know, they would very inflammatory posters and I think that is for me is hate speech. You know? In modern day world, modern day Malaysia, uh, we should not tolerate uh, hate speech or incitement for hate speech. You can disagree with the policy, say that's an unfair, unequal policy, no equality, this is controlled by businessmen or politicians or whatever, but you don't get the license to incite uh, hate speech. So. Sadly, while we know what hate speech did in May 13 and killed thousands or many people, yet you can get away with hate speech in Malaysia, although there are laws to, to take that, to take you to court and all that, but uh, not enough. And you know, in parliament, hate speech is spewed so easily. Uh, even parliament doesn't have a code of conduct for hate speech. It's so difficult to, to stop such hate speech. Uh, so I think a code of conduct is definitely uh, missing in our parliament. They're supposed to be our example anyway, but they are far from being a shining example on not propagating hate speech. Yeah. I think even if we look back into all the pol uh, parliamental uh, sessions and how the speech in parliament itself is being conducted, I think some people would even consider it hate speech, you know, one fellow calls another person killing, one person calls another something else, you know, so it's, it's yeah. it, it does occur even in our own parliament, which is shocking. But um, having said all that and knowing that, you know, uh, it does lead um, towards a racial divide and it does have implication of hate speech. As a commissioner of Suakam, what would your recommendations be to combat acts of hate speech, which could stem from such political strife, which obviously currently exists in our country today? Okay. Well, this is a, a long and big project. Uh, so I think uh, that one is uh, creating a space of uh, mutual respect 
So I think uh, this new Malaysia needs you and me to respect each other and not to, uh, to, to think somebody is lesser than me. Once you think any group, it could be a gender group, it could be an ethnic group, a religious group is number two in my same country, then uh, the probability of hate speech to grow is easy. So I think the defense of uh, mutual respect and equality, I think is important. Uh, so, so that's one. And number two, I think uh, if we want to create this space for understanding all Malaysians are equal, then we need an education system that actually teaches that, practices that, and actually shows leadership in what it means that all Malaysians are equal. So schools become an incubator for equality, which is not, and that's sad, uh, sadly uh, our reality. The teachers, the headmasters, which are mainly the Malay civil service, need to come out of their own cocoon of defending uh, their identity as Malaysian. They are not, they are teachers, they are Malaysian teachers. So these teachers, all of all ethnic groups, should actually be trained to be proud to defend against any people who may think I'm more or lesser. But sadly, you know, in the last few years, we've seen schools uh, having separate glass for Muslim, non-Muslim to drink water. You've heard some canteens separated Muslim, non-Muslim. And then if you talk to students, they say, oh, Kayla, you know, that, that girl or that boy is Malaysian. That person will get better chance to go to a club or a scholarship. And that shouldn't be the case. The day we lose hope on equality is the day the nation's crack widened. But my question is, where is the teachers? Where is the headmistress, headmasters, principals actually defending an equal society in school? And students these days are not stupid. No? You cannot say something and do something else. They are watching you. They see your conduct. They see who you befriend. If you only talk to Chinese teachers, only talk to Chinese teachers, or Malay teachers only sit among them and makan together, then what you're talking? What unity you want to promote by example? And so I think schools have failed us and universities even worse. Universities have institutionalized division. You go to the colleges and the dormitories and the, uh, where, where they, they are housing, uh, the rooms are separated. Muslim students sing in one room, uh, and the non-Muslims, they mix up and stay in one room. So why? Where did this idea come about that if I stay with a Muslim, I will lose my faith and the Muslim will lose their faith? I mean, that's so, so regressive and a very poor understanding of one's own faith because you would expect that if somebody believes in his faith or her faith, that person will continue. And my experience, I was in USM, University of Science Malaysia, in the early 1990s. And every year, my roommates were mixed roommates. Uh, at that time, they were brilliant. I mean, uh, I had senior Malays and mixed with Indian, Iban, Malay. I think one is a policeman somewhere now. And he, he remains a good Muslim. He's a high-level policeman now. Another was a senior gentleman, and they prayed. Uh, you did your thing. You had nice time to talk, tell stories. 
but only good came out of that mix, not negativity. If we had something, we talk about it. I mean, you become roommates, you, you get to know each other. But if you don't give that opportunity, you separate Malaysia from school, from university. And then you, when you, be, uh, you get into policy level, uh, director or government, and then you get uh, you criticize a society that is divided. You design this divided uh, society. And that's why I think the recommendations on countering hate speech is actually the, uh, the recommendation on propagating concept of equality to be felt and experienced by Malaysians. Because you cannot lie to people anymore. They know, they may smile at you, but after you go and say, I need Tipu, I just saw what he did. He gave that person better chance. So I think enough of lying to each other. Uh, I think practice uh, by your actions. So this also is in private company. Yeah? Same. Huh? Government, of course, we can criticize. We choose the government. But even private companies, they play this game across the border. Uh, Indian company, Chinese, Ibanco, whatever. But it should not be. It should be on, on merit. So... Number two is education. Number three is practice. Uh, as I said, how, uh, how to counter hate speech. And then number four is the need for, uh, for anti-hate speech laws. Uh, this is a bit more tough. Now we have sedition, but sedition is so wide. Anybody can be brought in for sedition. Uh, so if you criticize somebody, you say that sedition. That one is totally wrong. So Akam has always said, sedition is outdated. It must go, you know. But the incitement of hate speech needs a more finer... Uh, comb to, to look at the elements. So, so criticism is different from incitement to hate. So if you incite somebody to, to attack that particular ethnic group or religion and say, okay, let's all go to the temple and do something or go to the church or the mosque, that's incitement you know, uh, to, to hate speech. And of course, violence is also once you incite violence, that's already wrong. I don't so uh, there was uh, developing this concept of a uh, law on hate speech uh, that was proposed by the National Unity Council under Najib's time. But it was being developed under PH time. But sadly, this present government has flatly rejected the, the creation of uh, the hate speech law. They have rejected the creation of the National Harmony Commission, which is another way to manage uh, differences because we have uh, a division of our communities over so many years. So every small thing can spark some trouble, uh, you know, uh, oh, you, Mlayu, China, and then so it may. But the National Harmony Commission proposal under NUCC was to find a space to bring people together, sit down, talk, you know, it's a kind of a, a reconciliation space. So of course you have the law where you can charge them, arrest them. But before you go to that extent, an independent commission of experts who can sit and bring people together, talk about it. Okay, so rather find out and maybe there's some serious problem and then resolve that serious problem. So, so the Harmony Commission was a good idea, worked hard uh, from uh, Najib's time, continued by PH time, but this present government again has rejected it. So I think not taking the issue seriously, I think is a wrong move because hate speech has been part of the narrative, the political narrative the past six, seven decades. And we need to address it so that the younger generation like yourself, Donald and your team, should not be easily bought in. Uh, no matter how painful reality on the ground is, 
you must be able to resist the temptation for going down the path of, of hate speech. So I think uh, it's a range from education, uh, policy, law, but I think it's leadership at the top. I think it's time. I, I see your 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 Undi Malaysia. I see your brand name there. <laughs> so uh, this young generation should call for for leadership to actually mirror people who can stand up for equality. Malaysia only deserves a space for equality. Uh, enough of this having a, a division of two types of community. You know, one the majority, one minority. That should go. We should only strive for an equal Malaysia. And I guess that even answers our last question, which is in what can we do to mitigate? Um, but I believe, yeah, whatever you said in terms of the education, the law, the the unity aspect of it all, it should be done. In fact, um, I, I I do share your sentiment too because I'm also a law student currently in MMU, and we do have um, you know uh, the you know the 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 spirit of conversation with people of other races, and it's it's such a good thing. I don't get why there's such a motivation to create that racial divide, just because oh you know they scared the Chinese will take all your jobs, oh they scared the Indians will oversmart you, uh, you know they 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 you know they become smarter than you in exams. But it doesn't make sense because uh, the the spirit of togetherness is there and the spirit of unity, the spirit of oneness, it's all there. But for some reason, the powers that be, you know, create this racial divide, creates this narrative that incites and that is what causes hate speech and that's what causes this um, racial divide in fact uh, i think when you mentioned in terms of the university aspect i believe there are situations where uh, universities are having this racial quota system uh, you know i think iium and stuff is one of them and uh, not not to be a bit too forward about it but you know the whole aspect of having this racial divide and you know not even allowing or even being understanding towards other races being a part of the university that creates a very uh, solemn aspect of you know hate in fact even creates hate speech because you know they do uh, speak against the chinese speak against the indians saying that oh they don't belong here oh they don't do this they you know they they can't do that you know that kind of stuff so it's 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 bad but you know i think your recommendations will go really far and we hope we hope in the near future that you know uh, the, either this present government or the future government can actually take into consideration all that you have uh, said today. And uh, I think uh, since our time is up already, uh, with that, uh, this concludes our podcast episode for today. And we hope that you enjoyed this session and we would like to thank you again, Mr. Gerald, for your kind participation and a truly insightful perspective into our topic for today which is about the incidents of May 13 and how the incident has implications towards the spectrum of hate speech within our society. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. I think uh, I I congratulate you and your team because uh, if if the younger generation wants to unpack May 13 in order to move beyond, I think that's brilliant. Uh, I think we have very little memories and history. So you're doing a great service to the nation. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you again, Mr. Gerald. It's our kind, it's our most utmost honor and you know gratitude to have you with us today. And with that, we are wishing everyone a great day and do take care and stay safe during this pandemic. On behalf of Project Sayangkita and all our partners, we thank you for your attentive listening. And
Okay, yeah, that ends our recording. 